0: When I was a sophomore in high school, a French teacher organized a two and a half week trip to France, mostly in Paris and in Nice, to see various castles and cathedrals on day trips and so on. And I really very badly wanted to go on this trip, but my family couldn't afford it. So my mother went to my grandparents and they agreed to loan me half of the cost if I would earn the other half. And uh, that's not so easy at age fifteen. But I found ways to mow lawns, trim hedges, deliver newspapers, whatever it took. And the experience turned out to be both deeply formative for me and also deformative, but in a good sense. So the experience of seeing places like Notre Dame, Chartres, and Reims, these cathedrals formed in me at that time a real desire to see our faith expressed more beautifully than it had been in my life up to that point. As for the deformation, let me put it this way. Uh, When you visit a foreign country for the first time, you discover that life is a lot more diverse than you might have thought. It can be an unsettling experience, in fact. And when I first arrived, for just an example, there were many of these experiences. I didn't speak French all that well then or now. Uh, But when I first arrived, I found that the clothing that French teenagers wore to be pretty weird, maybe what we would say is uncool back home. And some of my fellow students uh, made fun of the differences in fashion, and I was tempted to view them negatively as uh, it's just human nature, I think, in a certain way. But that bothered me, you know, one shouldn't be so petty. And after a while, I actually noticed my tastes were changing, adapting to my new surroundings, and I even contemplated buying a pair of shoes and of a style that I'd never seen before in the States. Ultimately, I settled for a sweatshirt with the logo and name of the Sorbonne, which I thought would be amusing to wear when my friends put on their Notre Dame and University of Wisconsin sweaters. In any case, it gets one thinking, and one of the things I was thinking about is what sorts of fears or insecurities might have been moving me to pass judgment on the tastes of other people who, why would they care what I think? Why would I object to people in another country dressing differently? What prejudices were behind this reaction that I had? What might I learn about myself by examining these reactions? Because it's easy to view someone else's actions, let's just say, our own as well, but others' actions, and then quickly form a judgment and say, uh, this person's character is such and such a way because they did this action. But until we know a little more about the hidden forces and motives behind that action, we probably can't judge it very accurately or properly. So it's easy to condemn James and John, for example, as indeed the other apostles do. And and even the evangelists are a little uncomfortable about this episode Matthew, in his gospel, shields James and John by having their mother ask Jesus for this favor, and Luke just doesn't say anything about this episode. He doesn't tell this story. As it appears in today's gospel, in the gospel of Mark, the request seems hardly defensible. It just comes out of nowhere. It's the very first thing that happens at the beginning of the reading today, right? Uh, Why should they be given special precedence? What did they do to get this favor from the Lord? In fact, the church's lectionary has omitted three verses between last week's gospel, the rich young man, and today's gospel. And in those three verses, we discover a context which might make you a little more sympathetic to James and John. So it begins like this. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And as you probably know, Jesus goes on to tell them that he's going to Jerusalem to be arrested, mocked, scourged, and killed. James and John, after that, are speaking in the midst of a big cloud that has settled upon the hearts of their fellow apostles. We have good reason to think that they too are afraid. But we know as the sons of thunder, they like to put on a brave face. So perhaps they're even trying to work up the courage not to leave Jesus at this point and to continue following him into this dangerous situation. So they say, if we're going to do this, we want to sit at your right and your left hand. And it's interesting, Jesus does not rebuke them. He uses this question to give a a rather different teaching, a new teaching, about how authority is to be exercised. And let's say, uh, it sounds easy to lead by being a servant, especially before we get the leadership position. I can speak from some experience. It sounds like like it's going to be a cinch. Everybody else, all those other leaders, make the mistake of lording it over people. I won't be like that. Not so easy. Because in real life, what happens to servants and slaves? To be a slave of all is to risk being exploited by all. One might even be mocked one might even be spat upon or tossed aside, which is to say one might be treated like Jesus in Jerusalem. One of the great monastic founders, St. Pachomius of Egypt, he discovered this difficulty when he made his first foundation. It's very funny. There are several different versions of his biography in different languages, and most of them cut this passage out. It only survives in one uh, Coptic dialect uh, describing him. So, He decides to take Jesus very literally. This is his whole program as a monk, is to do exactly what the Gospels say. So he is going to serve every one of his brothers. He's going to be first by being last. And what happens? They took advantage of him. (laughs) And they did so to such an extent that he had to drive them all out with an ox goad. Right? So it didn't work. First experiment in Cenobitic monasticism was a failure. Uh, because Pacomius was trying to be a servant. It's not easy. So, what does he do instead? Does he get cynical or resentful and now he's going to boss everybody around? He did not return to a model of leadership to lord it over his monks and demand obedience, to use coercion and intimidation. No, he didn't do that. What he did is he wrote a rule. And he, even the abbot, was going to be subject to this rule. So this is the beginning of this new idea of a monastic rule, by the way. St. Pacomius did not give up on the ideal of imitating his Lord by becoming a servant. But he sought a different way of serving. In this case, service by teaching. And to to teach, one can only teach what one knows. So this puts a big demand on the spiritual leader to become a holy man himself uh, before he can start teaching. And then he leads by his own submission to this common rule, to the gospel, to the rule, etc. And this is to say that he conquered his fear and frustration not by giving in to the urge to control others so that he doesn't have to be afraid, they'll do what he wants, but by patience, by long-suffering, and especially by faith, like not giving up on this ideal. And this faith is grounded in the faith that Jesus has, because Christ himself is going to, by virtue of being a servant, end up dying for us all. So that has to be part of the deal uh, for going to be leaders. And rather than lord it over others, Jesus willingly allowed himself to be put to death. He handed himself over to just those leaders who lorded over others, and that's that was the end of his earthly life. But he trusted that the Father would protect him and vindicate him, that he would ultimately triumph by his patience. He would triumph over death by allowing himself to be put to death. And this is the the difficult secret of the life of service. It's really the cross. To serve without bitterness or regret or resentment of those who might take advantage of us or of those who exercise power in an effective way by intimidating others. We, w- we must accept the cross in our lives. We must accept being united to Jesus in his passion, that is to say in his patience, his willingness to suffer while others figure out <laughs> what has to happen. Death to ourselves, let's be honest, it won't feel good initially. At the very least, it will cause us discomfort. But this discomfort is now, it's, it's, uh, my story at the beginning is, is pretty paltry in comparison, but it's this discovery of this discomfort that maybe the world isn't what I thought it was. Maybe I need to recalibrate my response to things. We start to look at ourselves. We start to learn about the hidden insecurities that we carry around all the time. Maybe forgotten injuries, things we thought we had forgiven others at some point, but we haven't quite gotten past it yet. This is an opportunity to work on that with our Lord in prayer. And these, because if we don't do this, these hidden insecurities and injuries, wounds can, unexamined, make us uh, demanding of others or we might look down on others for choices that we don't like, and so on. Rather, by adhering to a life of diakonia, service, we will discover opportunities for purifying ourselves internally, for purifying our love for others, and even for ourselves and for God, since we will no longer be demanding, like James and John, preferential treatment from God. And in this quiet way... We will evangelize ourselves. The good news will become real in us. We will also evangelize others as Christ, the true servant of all, comes alive in each of us.